Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. Today, I am recording this on the 4th of July, America's Independence Day. Happy 4th of July to my U.S. listeners. As many of you understand, and and if you aren't from the U.S., you would know that today is America's Independence Day. That means it is a holiday. As many of you understand, holidays are oftentimes of extended work breaks, gathering with friends and family, and of course, awkward small talk about current events. My holiday so far has been no different, with many energy-related questions being fielded, and many conversations about what the current state of affairs means for the energy industry. So why not celebrate this and why not include all of you into this this classic scenario for all of our holidays? So today, if you haven't caught on, I'm going to do a question and answer. And I will admit, I did plan this episode beforehand. I did ask for questions on LinkedIn and on Instagram and all over the interwebs. So some of you may have known this was coming. And of course, this is also after the 4th of July holiday. So it's not going to help you this year. But I hope that some of these answers are interesting. I hope that they give you a sense of confidence going into any of these future conversations. And really, hopefully this helps you either feel or or be prepared for that next conversation when, by being in the energy industry, you become the de facto energy expert for the rest of your peer group. So I hope this podcast, with with all of this rambling, I hope this podcast prepares you for that next social outing when you ultimately get those energy-related questions. With that, here are the questions that I had. The first one, why don't we see more windmills? I think it's important to realize that the wind that we feel, yes, that is technically a resource, but it's not necessarily a commercial resource. So I think that is part of it, why you don't see windmills everywhere, because the the actual wind that is blowing is not enough to make money. That's one part. The other part is that in areas where there are a great, sometimes even world-class or phenomenal wind resource, that doesn't mean that there is a power use or power demand there they can ultimately utilize that resource. It's the same as if you're talking about a remote volcanic island in the middle of the Pacific. No people, 
no power demand, but there's a world-class geothermal resource. Is it really something that we want to think about and develop? How can we actually utilize that resource that is, in essence, a stranded resource? The other option is that this could be a stranded resource because of cost. There may be a demand that that is nearby, but that demand ultimately needs transmission lines. Those transmission lines to get the wind power to the end user may just be too expensive. And because of that, the wind power would be too expensive. And therefore, it's something that doesn't ever get built. I think a great example of this is the state of Wyoming. There's a project that we're doing at PetroLearn right now looking at the geothermal resources of Wyoming. But one thing that is, as we've been doing this research, one thing that really jumps out when you look at Wyoming is the phenomenal wind resource. They have some of the highest and most consistent wind speeds and therefore wind resources in the U.S. But as many of you know, Wyoming has a very small population and those population centers are just in a few select spots throughout the state. So even though they have this world-class resource, there is not the demand, there's not necessarily the transmission lines, and therefore there's not that commercial incentive that's going into full-scale development. Now, all that being said, there are groups working on further wind development in Wyoming. There are ideas that we are proposing to the state that for how they could develop this wind. And, and there are ways that eventually this wind resource could come to fruition and come online even though there's not that immediate direct demand. For all of you who are interested in understanding wind resources and maybe where wind resources are within the U.S., the National Renewable Energy Lab out of Golden, Colorado, NREL, they have very good maps that show the wind resource for the U.S. The next question starts as this. We don't hear about hydrogen cars anymore. Why not? Will they be a part of our future energy mix? Now, this question, hydrogen cars, for most people, what they're thinking about there are fuel cell electric vehicles. But this really could go two ways. So there's the fuel cell technology, but then there is also direct hydrogen combustion. So let's first tackle this fuel cell question. When we're talking about fuel cells, what we're doing is we're producing hydrogen, using that hydrogen to have a chemical reaction that produces the energy, here electricity, to then run a vehicle using electric power. The problem with fuel cells are really they're fuel cells themselves they are a they're a specific technology that requires you to have hydrogen that then converts to the power 
when we're talking about fuel cells, there's a few different things, a few different major hurdles that are inhibiting that that mainstream adoption. The first one being infrastructure. In order to have fuel cell electric vehicles, we need a hydrogen infrastructure so that cars can refuel with hydrogen. So that's a a thing that we don't have right now. And that's also part of the issue when it comes to talking about electric vehicles and when we're talking about things like liquid natural gas or LNG or compressed natural gas vehicles or even, even hydrogen combustion vehicles. We need the infrastructure similar to the fueling stations we have today for gas and diesel so that we can do a cross-country road trip. The second aspect of these fuel cells is that ultimately they are just less efficient. When you are looking at converting hydrogen to power through a fuel cell, ultimately you are first making hydrogen. If you want that to be green hydrogen, you need some type of renewable electricity or green electricity, or you need some type of carbon sequestration with that. So you first have to create the hydrogen. Now you take that hydrogen, you run that through a chemical reaction to now produce electricity. And now you're using that electricity to run your vehicle. So there's multiple steps. And according to a recent nature paper, which I will link in the show notes, it shows that on average, there's about three times more efficiency associated with a direct electric vehicle as opposed to using a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle. So it's it just kind of doesn't make sense right now to take green electricity to produce green hydrogen to then produce electricity to drive a car. The whole idea there is that hydrogen is now electricity that you can store and move kind of the same way as a battery is is stored energy that you can use to power your car. But it just hasn't worked out on paper yet. So what about hydrogen combustion? Here, the idea would be taking the hydrogen and directly converting that into mechanical energy through combustion very similar to an internal combustion engine of today, i.e. a gasoline engine. And this actually is taking hold. This is a a kind of large part of where we see hydrogen moving. There are a lot of industrial processes where hydrogen is actively used today. That is where a lot of the gray hydrogen has been used for the most recent past and, and probably the past 10 or 20 years of industrial processes, but mixing in hydrogen with natural gas for power production, this fuel blending is something that is starting to take hold. That is something that I spoke on one of the first episodes with with a guest from Endris and Hauser. So I will put a link in the show notes to that show where they talk about their technology that helps blend 
hydrogen with natural gas for combustion to make sure you're not frying up your your internal components. And that's really the big the big issue right now from my perspective with hydrogen combustion is that hydrogen burns at a lot higher temperature than natural gas. So simply converting internal combustion engines to burn hydrogen, that's going to take a few steps. But as far as making hydrogen burning cars, that I think is is not as far away. There we have the same issues of something like the infrastructure needs where we need to have hydrogen available everywhere. But as we talk about mixing natural gas with hydrogen, this is a natural, easy progression going from the natural gas infrastructure we have today, converting that to hydrogen. And now we've overcome one of those major challenges for hydrogen, that being the infrastructure. From there, it is getting those different pieces to build out a internal combustion engine that can take hydrogen directly. And so this is something that I know is being worked on. I have not had any guests on that specifically talk about direct hydrogen combustion for vehicle movement. But I did have a guest, Paul Rodden, on. That was episode 30 back in February. He runs the Hydrogen Podcast. I really encourage you to go check out his show. And I know he was talking to me about there was one car that was actively being developed. I think it was still in the prototype phase. But it's one of those that shows the possibilities of this hydrogen economy and direct hydrogen combustion. So I would encourage you to go check out that. Ooh, that was a long answer. So the next one, this was a question, I think this is a question everybody's thinking about right now. How will the EPA ruling impact the energy mix? Let me first cover what that Supreme Court ruling means. So what the Supreme Court basically said is that the EPA cannot set emission standards. The reason that they can't do that is because that is something that Congress has to mandate, has to codify into law, and then the EPA has the ability to enforce that. So the Supreme Court was basically saying they don't have the authority to set standards like that. And so the EPA is saying these are what you need to do in order to decarbonize, they're saying was unconstitutional. So what does that actually mean? Well, I've, I've looked at a few things. I've tried to understand. From my perspective, I don't think that this really will change the fact that decarbonization is going to take place. Right now, you still see movement away from coal and into natural gas peaker plants and renewables. This is happening in the U.S. That can't be denied. And I don't think that this 
specific ruling is going to necessarily stop that momentum, and it's not going to stop that completely. This movement away from coal, I think, is more of a function of consumer demand. There's a large group of the population that is asking for low-carbon energy. Right now, you have impact investors. You have the activist investors. So there, there are these people and these groups of people who are actively putting their money where they want to see both social and industrial change. I think that that is going to be pushing companies to make these decisions in order to switch and to decarbonize and to have a, a clear path towards a low-carbon future. And that doesn't change with this EPA ruling. So what does change? What does change is the stated goals of the government, really. I think that by the EPA not being able to enforce carbon emission standards, ultimately, it's going to be very difficult to reach the the government's goal. This is the U.S. government's goal of zero out carbon emissions for power plants by 2035. 2035, frankly, is is right around the corner. So being able to hit those numbers originally was going to be difficult. But now there's there's kind of no no backbone behind it. I think another way to think about this is is deadlines. So let's let's think about this. I I feel like we all work better when we have a deadline, when we have that that day where we know we have to turn something in. And what this ruling does is it basically removes that deadline. It says, "No, there's not really a bar you're going to have to hit because the EPA can't set a bar." So now this is kind of self-imposed deadlines, self-imposed bars. And some of that is coming from investors. So the companies still have some incentive there, but these are their self-stated goals and that push from the shareholders. So I think what this does is it essentially slows down the process of reaching a net zero world. Now companies really just have to show progress and they have to keep their investors happy. Moving on. So now we're actually going to jump across the pond and talk about Europe. The The question I was asked was, why is Europe moving away from nuclear? I think there's, there's two major reasons for this slowdown of nuclear in Europe. The first one is perceived risk. And then the second issue, which kind of builds off of that perceived risk, is the length of time that it takes to build nuclear and then from that length of time kind of where the state of all the nuclear reactors are today so let's break that down a little bit the first one being that perceived risk i think when we talk about nuclear everyone can name one of those failures of a nuclear reactor whether it's fukushima whether it's three mile island for for us in the u.s or whether it's Chernobyl. Those are kind of household names. And not 
not for a good reason. And here's the hard part with that. These major failure points, that is what ends up sticking with people. In reality, though, nuclear power is actually very safe. When I looked it up to try and figure out how many nuclear meltdowns there were, this is kind of it. There's Fukushima and there's Chernobyl. So I think when it comes to nuclear, it's really all about the perceived risk, which makes people not support it. I don't know if pop culture is helping or hurting here. One of my favorite games in my in my almost adult life was Fallout. And Fallout is, is a fantastic game. But what is Fallout? Fallout is a post-apocalyptic world from nuclear war. So I think that this this fear of nuclear is is almost built into society now. And and I I don't I don't think it's called for. And I will be having a guest in the near future on who we're we're going to work through all of these different aspects of nuclear and kind of where nuclear's going in the future because I think it does play a an important role in the future of energy and and especially for us hitting net zero targets. The second issue is this lengthy process of building nuclear power plants, going from first date of deciding you're going to have nuclear power to finally getting those electrons on the grid. This can often be a 10 or 20 year process just to build the power plants. With that, there's going to be a period of permitting. There is going to be then a a goal of 30 to 50 years of production. So these are very cost-intensive projects. And at the at the same time, they are they're perceived risky. They are financially risky because of that upfront investment, but then also what you're dealing with with nuclear power. I think these have gone into slowing down research, slowing down or lengthening the permitting process. And so while the existing plants are doing well, they're still producing power, they are not failing which is fantastic. They are slowly becoming, I guess, more and more needy when it comes to operations and maintenance. With anything that is that was built in the 60s or 70s or 80s, they are just moving a little bit slower. They need a little bit more maintenance. They need a little bit more care. Along with that, I think there has also been less research going into advanced nuclear reactors. And because of that, we, we are still using the, the technology from the 60s and 70s, even on new power plants being built. These are not necessarily new advancements. We have not gone through a shale revolution when it comes to nuclear power. And that's something that keeps the costs high, it keeps the risks high, and ultimately it it 
makes it that if you have a competing energy source that you can find, it probably is going to win out. As I said, I will have a guest on very soon to talk all about nuclear. It will be U.S. focused, but it will have implications for for really all of nuclear energy development. So the next question, what is the current cost of flash steam and dry steam geothermal power? One thing that that many of you may know, on LinkedIn, every Thursday, I post some type of, of post. I use the hashtag Thermal Thursdays, and I post something that is educational, often surrounding geothermal energy, sometimes just something fun, thermodynamics related. This past week, I got this question on there asking about that current price for flash steam or dry steam geothermal power. So the answer, based on IRENA, which is the International Renewable Energy um, Association, they produce lots of lots of reports. The last one they had about power generation costs came out in 2019. And in that, the average levelized cost of electricity for all geothermal power was around seven and a half cents per kilowatt dollar or per kilowatt hours in US dollars. This was primarily flash steam systems. So very few dry steam geothermal power plants have come online recently. This price is expected to drop a little bit. And so for the power plants that are expected to be coming online in the near future, the price ranges from four to nine cents a kilowatt hour. Again, kind of target price of maybe around five cents a kilowatt hour. I know we've talked about pricing and and how geothermal compares to all other renewable energies and all of these other things. I think the things that, before we get off of this, I'm going to get back on my soapbox. Levelized cost is not necessarily the best metric to be using when we're talking about comparing power. I know that everybody ultimately gets back down to price, which is the levelized cost. But if we're talking about decarbonizing, what we need to do is we need to focus on what is the cost to remove the next gigaton of carbon from the grid. How are we going to do that? Is that going to be solar plus batteries? Is that going to be geothermal? Is that going to be enhanced geothermal? Is that going to be efficiency improvements in every single house? Are we going to subsidize people buying LEDs and re-insulating their homes? I'd be all for it. I've got a light flickering right now in this very room. But that is the question that we should be asking. Because if we're pushing for decarbonization, then we should be trying to find the most efficient, most cost-efficient, and most energy-intensity-efficient way to do that. And levelized cost does not necessarily incorporate that. 
Now I'm getting off of my soapbox, moving on to the next question. This one coming from LinkedIn. It says, I've always wanted to get into geothermal since I was in college, yet there was just no industry backing whatsoever. I went to several conferences with what felt like fringe folks, but now it seems the tide is turning. And this is what I want to do. Is there any advice for getting a foot in the door? So basically, how would I get a job in this renewable energy space, specifically geothermal? Well, you've already tried going to these conferences. I would say the Geothermal Rising Conference is one of the best places to go. The annual conference is coming up. It'll be in August, the very last week of August. Unfortunately, it does overlap with the AAPG Image Conference. But if you want to be in geothermal, you can go to the Geothermal Rising Conference. You can meet much of the industry. You can, I would, I would bet that a lot of the startups will be there. The ones who have recently been coming out and starting, starting new ideas, new prospects. And several of them have been on kind of hiring binges lately. I think that by going there, you can see what is happening in the geothermal space. You can see what your transferable skills are, and you can just see how to how to get into the geothermal, the geothermal industry. One of my episodes that I would guide you to for that is episode 19 with Asad Mohana of NOV. He talked more, so his focus was actually talking about how NOV has made a has made significant headway into offshore wind but where that conversation went was ultimately saying what are those transferable skills that NOV had what were they good at and where could they apply those outside of oil and gas and i think that's really what you're asking here is how do you how do you get a job in geothermal well what those geothermal companies want to know and really what anybody would want to know in some other industry is what are you good at? What are those, what are those timeless skills that you have? Aren't necessarily a, a specific boutique skill, but what is the overarching skill set that you've developed? And now how do you think you can apply that to this industry? That is what I would do. So if you do end up going to the GRC, then I'll see you there. Come find me. I will be there. One more side note on that. I believe the early registration price ends July 29th. So if you sign up now, you can get in cheaper. And I will include a link to the Geothermal Rising page in the show notes as well. So now the last question I got, this one I felt like was a little bit cheeky. When will we run out of energy? Well, here's the good news. 
we won't. The primary source of energy for all living organisms, both alive and dead, is the sun. Back during the Carboniferous and the Permian, back 300 million years ago, the sun was shining, it was driving photosynthesis for plants to grow. Ultimately, those plants would die. Those were the ones that were buried and turned into oil. I understand type 1, type 2, type 3. That's not what I'm getting into. It's basic, basic concepts that the sun is running photosynthesis. Photosynthesis is producing organic matter. That organic matter is the basis for our hydrocarbons. Today, the sun is what is shining and giving us energy through photovoltaics. That sun is shining and still allowing plants to grow. That Those plants are growing and feeding us. It's feeding the animals out there on the earth. All of that food is giving us energy. So as long as the sun is there, it will be shining. It will be providing energy and producing energy and producing a carbon cycle and a life cycle for all of us. Once the sun goes, that is going to be the end of energy on Earth. And I hope I'm not around for it because it doesn't really sound like it's going to be that fun going supernova and all. Now, I know there's semantics here, right? I know that the Earth formed has remnant heat of formation, has tectonics running and radioactivity. That's the basis of geothermal energy. I know that there's a lot of great companies working on new biofuels, new ways to produce trapped hydrocarbons, new ways to capture carbon and sequester it. I think the main point here is that there's a lot of innovation. There is a lot of opportunity for the resources we have right now. And as long as the sun is shining, there is still going to be hope that we will develop the tools and technologies to provide abundant, affordable, reliable energy in a clean, safe, and sustainable way. I think that is a good note to end on. So with that, Thank you, everyone, for joining me on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please do me a favor. Give me that five-star rating, leave a review, and share this episode with a friend. Doing these quick and easy actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. And if you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. If you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon. Mention OGGN and they will give you a free day pass. Whenever I'm in Houston, I'm at the Canon. And don't forget, it's also where we host our monthly industry mixers. So if you have any questions, if you want to be on the Q&A the next time I do it, send me a message on LinkedIn or email me. Also, if you have any comments, corrections, or if you want to be a guest and have a story that you want to share, connect with me. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. 
Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.